Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving, or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Rick Samada is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, I Never Said I Loved You. His exceptional memoir explores masculinity and mental illness and sees Rick set off on the ultimate quest to discover where his depression comes from. The book shines a light on how childhood sexual abuse and the silence surrounding it has a devastating effect on a survivor's memory. Rick bravely seeks to piece together the past and discuss the abuse with his mother for the first time. But in true Rick style, his accounts of a breakdown are shot through with humour and wit. I've never laughed and cried so much at the same time, particularly when he winds up in a sex hotel in Bangkok with his mum. At times, it's almost shocking how much he cracks us up while sensitively confronting his own pain. Rick is a Guardian journalist who started out on the paper as a temp in the switchboard and went on to write the hugely successful Inspector Gadget column. His notorious Eggmaster review went viral, and he continues to attract a cult following with his column, Rick Samada Tries Something New. Recent adventures include axe-throwing, glass-blowing, and mindful painting. Rick is an actor writer and broadcaster. He played the lead in The Indian Boy at the RSC and has appeared in Coronation Street and Emmerdale. I've read his book twice and am floored by his vulnerability, but what really stands out for me is he leaves us with a real sense of hope that healing and recovery are open to everyone. Rick, thank you for coming on page. Hi, it's so lovely to be here, Abby. Thanks for having me. So I say this every episode, it's always a tough decision to pick a page there were many other pages in the running including you know Bali sex hotels in Bangkok (laughs) many trips that you go on in the book but I and all your mum's extraordinary and unique food (laughs) and I've gone down a real rabbit hole uh, on Twitter recently looking at pictures of things your mum gave you when you had a cold recently (laughs) Um, but anyway I went with page 194 Um, so when you're ready please could you read that for us sure for longer than a year I knew true loneliness not a handsomely enigmatic acoustic guitar kind of loneliness but a series of abject, surreally isolated images. A freezer exclusively stocked with bread, for one. I couldn't finish a loaf on my own before it got mouldy, so was always buying more, forgetting I already had a freezer full and having to add it to the pile. A man talking to mice that had begun to infest the flat, growing so bold or concerned that they tugged the hem of my tracksuit bottoms with their teeth as I sat motionless in my chair. The lumpy outline of a body under the covers of the bed. A body that would never wake up. I had started stuffing the lonely half of the bed with pillows to trick my body into believing someone else was there. In the awful silence of night, I would play music from a phone wrapped inside a pillowcase, muffled and small, and pretend someone was singing to me. Embarrassing, 
how much comfort I found in the trembling of the tiny sound wave upon the sheets, in the bed springs, how much my loneliness amplified that movement of air into a loving touch. Thank you. So, can you remember writing that? That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know that I can, to be honest. No, I sort of, I remember each of, as I'm going through them, I remember these sort of states that I was in and them happening in my life and actually writing them down. It's, no, it sort of seems like a strange kind of, as if seen through a mist or something. It's strange with these feelings. It's kind of when you're in them, there's nothing else you feel. And then once you're out of them, things like depression or hunger or pain, if you're not actually in that state, it's sort of hard to imagine what they try to grab hold of what they feel like and the hold they have of you. But, but when you're in them, they're, they're everything. Well, you, I guess you would have written it not in that state, but you've captured it as if it's so palpable, that, that sense of loneliness. Um, yeah. So I suppose I always took notes when I'm in difficult times. I always try and write down how I'm feeling. That's the kind of way to process my feelings and connect with myself. So I suppose when it comes to writing, that's always a good kind of ignition key to get you back into that state when you go over things you do remember, where you were and how you felt. And if if you wouldn't mind setting the scene a little, why were you experiencing, for people who haven't read the book yet, why were you experiencing true loneliness at this at this stage? So this was a time that my depression had really started to reassert itself and I was withdrawing into myself and that had a knock-on effect on the relationship I was in at the time, which started to fall apart. And so uh, we broke up and this was the immediate aftermath of that breakup when I felt no forward direction in my life and I just felt stuck and alone and the future I'd envisaged had kind of crumbled and and I felt completely paralysed. That idea that the lumpy outline of a body under the covers of a bed, a body that would never wake up, that captures that sense of feeling paralysed. Would you have slept a lot of the day at that time? Yes, the pull of sleep and unconsciousness is really powerful when you're feeling in that state of depression or complete loneliness, you sort of, I sort of looked at myself as a corpse, really. I just kind of had this, I would see myself just wanting to lie in bed all day, sleep in the afternoons, not sleep at night, but just lie there wishing I was asleep. And yeah, the burden of consciousness sort of becomes so much that you do just want to sleep your life away. And I love the image of the handsome acoustic guitar playing Lonely Man, that there is a there is a romance to loneliness and heartbreak, the idea of it, but, but that's not what you felt your kind of loneliness was. I suppose loneliness is often presented to us in kind of songs or films or TV shows, and they necessarily, because they're art, they kind of have this aesthetic handsomeness to them and a kind of beauty and a, a nobility, I suppose, as if we're alone, but we're on this sort of hero's quest and it's you know, and all part of the drive towards something greater. And that probably actually is the case a lot of the time emotionally. But uh, in the moment, of course, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, it feels like your life is over and nothing will ever be right again. And the existential weight of being alone just sort of presses in on you from all sides and you feel bleak and fatigued and you just want to be asleep all the time. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's not the kind of, album cover vision of loneliness that were often shown. <laughs> the poets and the... Mm, exactly, yeah. wandering lonely as a cloud sounds mm. sort of quite lovely, but actually it's 
you know, if you've got the energy to go for a walk, that's fine. To wander lonely as a cloud cloth and I'm, I'm sleeping lonely as a jelly bean under the fridge. <laughs> How long do you think you stayed in that flat for, in that headspace? Well, I suppose I left the flat for various reasons to it, to feed my corpse of a body and to see people that were concerned about me. And I, I did actually, I think I even went on holiday, a brief holiday for a couple of days. But um, the headspace is really the space you're living in, not the environment. And uh, that persisted for quite a long time. Yeah, so actually how you're feeling and where you are don't always match up. You can feel lonely with friends. You can feel lonely in crowds. You can feel lonely in the, even in a happy relationship. You know, loneliness can affect us all. It's not just about isolation. We always think of that May Sarton quote, I think, or I do. It's um, loneliness is the poverty of the self and solitude is the richness of the self. And there's a lot of truth in that. Mm. But we can, yeah, we can sort of feel that kind of isolation even in company, I think. I was looking at some statistics for loneliness and I think actually loneliness has grown throughout the pandemic everywhere. But areas in the countryside which are physically isolated actually report lower rates of loneliness than urban areas which sort of seems strange because here in cities we have people packed in on each other and you think you know how is loneliness possible but actually it's it's higher in those spaces where the human population is greater so it's really not connected at all with the outside circumstances it's it's your headspace a lot of the time it's where you are emotionally and mentally i mean i wanted to talk about loneliness because i mean there's stigma around all sorts of things but i've certainly heard so many friends open up about feeling depressed or anxious, but I can't think of a single person who's ever said to me, I feel lonely. And I don't think I've ever said that to anyone else. Mm. Loneliness isn't really cool <laughs> in the way that depression can sometimes be cool or, you know. It sounds a bit contagious. It sounds, it sounds a bit contagious. It's kind of like, don't give me that. That's. It's like, I feel like it comes with a dollop of shame do you feel that yes definitely it's um it's true vulnerability to to tell people we're lonely um it's often associated with older people as well mm-hmm. so it doesn't have that kind of youth cachet <laughs> a lot of those other painful states do um you're right there does seem to be a sense of contagion to it people are worried people are scared of it it does have this shameful component a bit like grief in that respect people are worried that they're going to catch it if they they come too close to it in others so did you really have mice? Yes, <laughs> that's completely true. The, um, oh, really? I, yeah, I had these mice and would, would normally fill me with horror and disgust to some degree. But no, I was so lonely at that time that actually, honestly, any kind of movement <laughs> in the flat, any kind of life was very welcome to me. And I would just watch them in this kind of catatonic state. And I'd watch these mice get bolder and bolder and um, they kind of come closer and closer to me and after a while, it just sort of became their flat, and they'd. And I remember one day this mouse just going close to my trouser leg, and and then just pulling on my trouser leg and on my tracksuit bottoms, and I wanted to cry. It was such a, you know, to be touched and connected with him. <laughs> this kind of lonely form of life it was a very strange sort of <laughs> connection, a very lonely one. But yeah, no, it's all real. Um, and in the pandemic, I had the same sense with it. House spiders, I felt a real connection to them. I think like a lot of people I really got into my house plants and the fact that there was something growing, something moving in my flat, apart from me. No matter how slowly, you know, I grew mushrooms for a while and that was amazing. 
had an amaryllis that was growing incredibly quickly over wow. winter and just having any sort of movement in the natural world that's even though it's much slower than the usual hectic human pace that we're used to was strangely healing to me and do you think that you've experienced kind of different shades of loneliness because this from this extract the loneliness is is also heartbreak and loss whereas i guess pandemic loneliness did that have a different would you characterize that in a different way i suppose so i think all loneliness has grief in it but you're right the romantic loneliness feels different to the loneliness when we can't see our friends or family and we're cut off from those safe cozy situations and of course there's an existential loneliness that we that we can all feel at various times in our lives no matter where we are and who we're with you know the fact that we're we're born into this world and we live alone inside our skulls and we have to make our way on our own inside their skulls and eventually die alone those are the facts of the human condition and they are lonely and they have, that feels different to a breakup or having to stay inside your flat or having friends move away or moving town or changing jobs but they do all have this component of of grief i think in them and were you able to you know what helped were you able to tell people um I suppose there are two prongs to what helps um because there's an emotional aspect to loneliness and there's a practical aspect and I think the emotional one is actually the crucial one to address I found that gratitude really helped because loneliness leads us to reproach our lives you know we take things for granted and we we focus on how things could be better how we wish things were different and so we do take things for granted and we we forget to be thankful for the things we have or notice the people that are around us or the connections that are present in our lives because we're focusing on what we've lost or what we don't have so i found that actually taking the time out to realize the things that are still present for us and the sources of gratitude and to be thankful was a necessary part of building some emotional stability and then practically i think just making the first move is really key is you is getting the energy however you can to reach out get in touch with friends you know making plans is always so difficult and you always want to cancel but actually trying to go through with things or join clubs taking up hobbies or classes those little communities that we can find aren't idle adornments in our lives they can become the quiet bedrock of our place in the world and there are there are activities for every age and disposition you know whatever you're into there'll be other people who are into it as well and that's a very comforting thing and even if we don't have the energy to do that in real life we can make the first steps online and then hopefully take it into real life but i think the real important first move is is that emotional connection with ourselves and understanding that it's normal to feel lonely and it's not forever things we have this sense when we're lonely that our life is diminished and we're stuck inside this rigid shell of circumstance and that it will always be that way and we don't have the energy to break that shell from our own resources and we feel quite defeated and hopeless but actually that's not the case no state is forever the only thing that is constant in life is change and our circumstances will change and our emotional reality will change so understanding that the things that make us lonely are actually the things that connect us to others uh in fact i found very helpful um because we do all feel lonely mm. we do all feel all the painful emotions of life and actually those are the things that form the deepest connections amongst people i think the thing that really helps is not resisting that sometimes actually taking it as an opportunity 
to get to know ourselves and to spend time in ourselves because we spend so much time often running from difficult emotions or being alone. And actually for me, really confronting loneliness and having to establish a relationship with oneself because we're all we have, really. So getting to know oneself, reading, writing, finding the things that stimulate our thoughts and creativity. These are all things that develop that interior richness that mean that actually, even if we have to spend time alone, we don't have that poverty of the self. We have a rich interior landscape that we carry with us. And that that lush interior of the self is something that really came out of that lonely time for me. And of course, writing a book, which changed my life in lots of ways. So there are these latent values, these buried values and treasures in loneliness that we just can't see at the beginning. But if we have the courage to go into there, into that mental space and really just sit with it, all sorts of flecks of gold can float to the surface. It sounds that in order to sit with it and to turn inward in that way, you, you need to get to that place of acceptance. And I don't know about you, but certainly at the beginning, there's just so much resistance. It's kind of like, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to feel this way. <laughs> Did you have that, this resistance that moved into acceptance and that changed the state a little? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. It's that acceptance is the hardest thing because we don't want to be associated with our negative feelings. You know, we want to we want to be immune, we want to be invulnerable, we want to be immortal, and we don't want to think of ourselves as suffering creatures or to accept that that might be how our life will be for a while. But acceptance is really the key to finding our way through. It reminds me of that Pema Chodron quote. She's that uh, Buddhist mm. teacher and she says, I think she talks about hot loneliness, which is where we're, we don't want to sit with our, that feeling. So we, we act out and we make bad relationship choices or we or addictions or we binge eat or whatever it is, whatever our coping mechanism is. And she says, if we can find a way to turn that into cool loneliness where we just accept it, it will have less of a hold over us. And she says... So even if the hot loneliness is there, that loneliness that we all want to act out from, so even if the hot loneliness is there and for 1.6 seconds we sit with that restlessness when yesterday we couldn't sit for even one, that's the journey of the warrior. So it's trying to find meaning in our loneliness and acceptance means that we can start to really give these negative feelings a place at the table emotionally and then they have less of a we're less defended against them and they have less of a, a dark hold over us because they're welcome and they, they're not knocking on the door trying to burst through. They're just, you let them in, they stay for a while, they leave again. Oh, I love that quote. What's that book? It, that was from uh, When Things Fall Apart. When I read... I had started stuffing the lonely half of the bed with pillows to trick my body into believing someone else was there. I was so moved by that bit because it's so relatable and I feel like haven't we all used a pillow as a hug or an imaginary body? I feel like that's very common. Yeah, I suppose people don't really talk about it because it's our kind of most private space and our most naked, vulnerable time is that middle of the night when we just want to be held or hold and if there's no one there we use... A pillow and it, yeah, holding a pillow, I've always done it. I don't, yeah, it's just, it's like those experiments with the baby monkeys that were removed from their parents and the baby monkeys chose to cling to a wire frame with felt around it oh. as a substitute for the mother's body, even though there was 
another option where there was milk available, but on just a bare, cold frame, and they chose that warm substitute body because that's what we all need is to be held. <laughs> you know, if there's no one there, then a pillow has to survive and it holds warmth and it gen- generates it back. A hot Something water bottle. Around. Hot, hot exactly. water bottle also works. <laughs> yes. I believe cats can be very good for this, although I don't have one myself. Yeah, I'm sure that's the thinking behind all these kittens and puppies. Yes. Well, the thing with cats is when they when they settle on you, it's such a privilege and you just, you just don't want to, to move away. I suppose it's the same with dogs that might settle in your lap or next to you. And, you know, they, they model this kind of deep repose and peace and you want to keep that safe for them. And so actually it becomes a gift for us because we don't move away. We just settle down and we mm. stay where we are and then sleep takes us and we can also find that peace that they that they give us. So that's why they're such incredible soul companions, cats and dogs. We don't deserve them. And I feel like this extract kind of explains why so many people and certainly um, when you're younger, but I guess not necessarily for everyone, but different times, different stages in your life, you'd rather stay in a relationship that's not working than face that loneliness. We're so terrified of the vast horizon of life and stepping out into it, into the unknown, alone, not knowing what terrors we'll face and not knowing if we have the resources inside us to meet them, that we will put up with all sorts of bad treatment or not ideal circumstances that we know deep down are wrong, but we're afraid all the time. So to actually be in that loneliness, whether you choose it or it's forced upon you, to actually just accept it, it's an incredibly brave and courageous and noble thing to do. So yeah, we do often spend so much time denying those states or, or existing in situations that are bad for us to avoid that existential vulnerability, that feeling of being on the plane of life, alone and defenceless. But really, we all have to cross that plane at some point in our lives. And it's, it's incredibly valuable and it's part of life and it's a privilege in a strange way. And do you think with this specific break up with Eliza because it's such an extraordinary relationship in your life and the breakup ceremony you both choose to do for me felt like such a measure of what that relationship had been and how close you still were and you wanted to mark what it had meant to you both do you think that this was a particularly tough reaction and the loneliness and grief that followed was was sort of because of how deep the love had been and how great the relationship had been yes in this particular example um just as grief is the mark of love it's the echo of of love my reaction to that breakup the deep loneliness i felt was a sign of how inmixed my life had been with hers and how painful the untangling was and how much of my daily security and comfort and future possibility i had lost so yeah the more love was originally present the more pain there is to come. Whenever we, every act of love is setting this time bomb of loss in motion and it's unavoidable. That's the price of love. We can't love without the risk of loss and eventually all things do end, whether it's in a heartbreak or whether it's through losing our connection to each other or whether it's through death, you know, all relationships end. And we have to accept that and accept the painful gift of life. And this was definitely the sense I had when that relationship ended. And do you find it 
did you find it cathartic to kind of pin this down to the page? I mean, I've read that in another interview that you have said, you know, it's not therapy. I go to therapy. This is not therapy. <laughs> but it is therapeutic, right, to kind of really beautifully in a paragraph sum up what that <laughs> what that felt like. Yes, I think transforming our pain is definitely part of the healing process. When you're crafting it for other people in a published form, that's something else. It has all these other aspects to it. But um, the pure act of writing, if it's just for yourself and journaling, um, even though I know it's difficult and sometimes we don't want to, the act of transforming our sorrow, translating it into something positive, by which I don't mean just insisting on that everything's great and everything's happy, but that we can we can turn this abstract, inchoate pain into something concrete and real and with clarity that's very calming to the spirit so it is therapeutic to write there's that Richard Raw quote I think which is if we do not transform our sorrow we transmit it to others something like that it's it's such a necessary part of of processing and not just acting out our more difficult aspects that we we try and take them in and accept them and have clarity with them and writing is definitely a very very helpful way of doing that for me gosh that's really helpful with thinking about parenting certainly you can transmit a lot if you don't transform that's the thing it's bringing the more we bring to consciousness the less we unconsciously inflict on other people which is what we Mm. we do is things that we haven't confronted in ourselves we make other people suffer them which is not very fair Um, Mm. so it's really it's really one's civic duty to try and confront all of one's own painful aspects and make peace with them mm. before you before you enter a relationship with other people or whilst you're doing that. Are there new ways of coping with these types of states that you've discovered in the in the pandemic? We talked a little bit about the mushrooms and lockdowns. How has that kind of isolation affected you? What have you learned from that? I remember there was a time when the supermarket shelves were empty and <laughs> even basic food items weren't available, which sort of seems, which sounds crazy, but that's how it was. And I remember there was a day when I realised that there was a bakery about a couple of miles away that I could walk to for my exercise and they always had eggs and flour so I could go home and I could bake. And that was literally all, all I would do on that day. And the discovery of a, a rhythm of life that was much slower than we're habitually used to and Apart from the overwhelming umbrella of existential terror, there was this joy of small things, these little moments. The finding of a carton of eggs made me so happy. Um, the making of a cake, the going outside once a day and smelling the air. These little things that actually, you know, when we're in the forward thrust of our lives, we just take for granted and think of as incidental kind of wallpaper. Actually, that is life. Those little moments, that is your life. Mm. Uh, And actually realising that, coming to that realisation and giving those things their dignity and their worth, those moments, I found incredibly healing and comforting. And actually it's something I miss in a strange way now that life has become busy and complicated again. I think for a lot of people there's a strange sort of nostalgia for a time when life really was very simple and comforts were small but no less real for being small. And there's something in the slowness that it enables you to do that 
accepting you were talking about earlier. You don't have to rush a feeling because you've got to get to a meeting. You can think about it on the walk to the bakery. Yes, exactly. That slowness is such, you're so right, that's such a big part of it because I don't think we're meant to live at this accelerated pace that we do live at. We're not meant to have the kind of connectivity that we do have. We're not meant to take on, you know, bad news from China on a daily basis. You know, it's not, that's not what the human physiological system is designed for. We're designed to live uh, slowly in small communities on a day-to-day, in a day-to-day way. Um, And we have really lost that, which is fine. That's how it is. But understanding that and trying to reclaim it where possible is a very life-giving thing. And to live at that slower speed, uh, which I suppose happens naturally as we age and we go through life, we do start to slow down. Actually, there's a deep, hopefully a deep peace and meaning in that. Mm. That's the thing with loneliness as well. It really pairs your life down because you you don't have the frippery love of the time. You do just have yourself and the bare facts of your existence. And if there's a way you can find that they are enough, that actually you have more than you need, which is the case then you can start to expand again and you'll you'll feel more open to life and things will start to come towards you. I do believe that. Mm. We do attract things, positive things when we're at peace. And that's how it starts, from within, from being comfortable in in ourselves and our occasional loneliness. And it's hard to believe it'll lift when you're in it. I remember after a breakup I was working and I had to get the bus to work and the bus journey was about 30 minutes and I would cry for the whole 30 minutes and then dust myself off and do the day's work. And I remember thinking, I'll be crying on this bus 30 minutes a day every morning for the rest of my (laughs) life. I don't care what anyone tells me. I will definitely be crying from 8 a.m. till 8.30 every every day of my life. And that's the deal. And then I can't even remember when I got my book out, read my book, got my coffee, talked to someone on the bus. Obviously, I stopped crying. But you don't know why or... I didn't do anything or But no you accepted magic it. You accepted that that was, that was your cry time. <laughs> <laughs> my allotted and, cry time. My allotted cry time. And, and actually it's what you needed at that time to, go through your, to get through your working day. And we're stronger than we, than we know we are. We can get through so many things and that's how you got through. You know, that's how you kept working. And uh, yeah, accepting that, that I will cry at this time. Mm. <laughs> or I, will, I will go to Tesco and walk down the chiller aisle and feel... <laughs> numbing pain of existence um, uh, that's that's just my time to do that that's fine and actually it's a way of accepting giving ourselves that space to cry it's incredibly valuable and accepting it means that we do think it will last forever uh, we just have this pessimistic veil that falls upon us and it's not the truth but of course we can't see that we're convinced that it is the truth and then one day it's not something lifts we return to ourselves the light breaks through, we feel free. And even if we don't believe it, we have to tell ourselves that until it becomes true. And then one day it is true. Mm. And do you still play music from your phone in bed? I thought well, that sounded really comforting. <laughs> um, I've become, uh, appropriately enough, very addicted to podcasts um, over the last year. I never really listened to them that much before, but something about pure voice and having that easy, enduring companionship. You know, we do start to think that the hosts of our favourite podcasts are our friends in some ways. 
And I still find that an incredibly lovely thing. And I have my favourites and I listen to them in bed now from the side. Oh, what are your what are your top tips? I'm always looking for more more podcasts to listen to. Oprah's good. Oprah's super yes. solid Sundays. She always has great people on. Uh, yeah. I listened to Fern Cotton yesterday. Yeah. There's a, a podcast called This Jungian Life, which is three therapists discussing dreams and also things in the culture through a Jungian lens. And I find very um, intellectually stimulating. I like things that are a bit boring, a bit dry. <laughs> I like, yeah, I like a bit of a university lecture. I like to think mm. that I now know everything about something because I did 45 minutes. Yes, Esther Perel. I used to oh, love yeah. listening to her. She's obviously amazing, such a nice voice. Yeah, deep, soul-stirring, comforting mm. wisdom. I find very good at bedtime. All music, a few favourites. Yeah, so I do still have that technological companionship in my life. And last question, but how are you now? I'm okay. I'm... Like everyone, I found the last couple of years incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I think we'll be dealing with the ramifications of that time for a while. So loneliness still comes. Pain, despair, fear, all still present. But but now I do try, now I know enough to let them in and to have a dialogue with them. And just because those negative feelings are around, the positive ones don't die. They're still there. Our connection to ourselves is always possible, even if it dims for a while. We will always come back to ourselves. I will find myself again. And the future can be better. And I think there are lots of reasons to hold on to that. And I do. Even though it still feels like we're in dark times, and I suppose we are, there is a dawn that will come. And I find more peace in myself now, less thrown around by the turbulence of difficult times. I found that home inside myself, which is the only real antidote to loneliness, is knowing that we are our only companion through life. And so we have to befriend that person that we are. And if we can do that, then we'll never truly be alone, because we'll always have that sense of self to come back to. And I do have that now. So I'm okay. <laughs> Good. Did, did the book help help with some of that? Because it's been such a huge success. The book was such a talisman of those times for me that as soon as it was finished and out in the world, it felt like it was strangely nothing to do with me anymore. Uh, and I even felt like someone else had written it, which I think is actually quite common with writers. Um, so there is a sort of disconnection from it in a strange kind of way, because you move on. I'm not the same person I was when I wrote that. We're always changing. But it was helpful. I'm glad when people get in touch and say how much it means to them because it feels like it has its own life and it's doing good and I was involved in that. You know, I did something good and it helped people and that's another part of my bedrock that I can return to in myself. But it's not something that I... It's not the pillow that I keep hold I keep hold of at night, you know, that keeps me warm. It's... <laughs> um, you're not hugging no, your book. I'm not hugging my book. No, I'm <laughs> other, <laughs> looking to the... But other people are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very lovely. It's quite... Um, I mean, I wouldn't recommend the hardback for that. No, it's no. It's spiny. But, um, <laughs> but no, it's it's a deep privilege and it makes me feel so wonderful and so connected to others. And yeah, the sense of connection you get from when people share things that they felt with the book is 
has been such a deeply rewarding thing for me, and I feel truly humbled by that, but yes, it was definitely a step towards my inner peace. It wasn't the whole journey by a long way, but it was a vital sort of first step in overcoming those years of darkness and loneliness with myself, you know, that estrangement from myself that I'm always trying to bridge the gap of. It was the first step, not the last step in that journey, and I keep walking it today. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbeyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production, produced by me, Abby Hollick, original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass, sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp, graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. Thanks.